0: Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. John 21, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, Do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is God's word. Amen.
1: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open to John chapter 21 as we pray together this morning. God, as we open this final chapter of John's gospel, we ask, as we have each week that we have considered passages from this wonderful book, that you would move, that you would dwell here with us, that by your Spirit we would hear your voice and receive the truth that is contained here in this text. Lord, as you taught the disciples that day on the Sea of Galilee, we ask that you would continue to teach, that you would teach us today by this same word, and that you would move in us by your Spirit. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, when Jessica, my wife, and I moved to Massachusetts a little over five years ago, it became immediately obvious to us that we would need, desperately need the GPS navigation feature that's on our cell phones. We knew that we were gonna to need to keep it turned on pretty much constantly. Because we were used to parts of the country where streets meet at 90-degree angles. Uh, where it's so dry that there aren't trees blocking your view from the road in every single direction. And where half the streets are sequ- sequentially numbered. Things like first street, second street, third street, and so on. None of that exists here we realize lots of roads have multiple names there are so many trees that it's hard to tell what direction you're going a lot of the time and the layout of the roads is just absolute chaos it's like someone let a three-year-old draw a map and then they use that as the blueprint for where to put the roads so we were grateful that gps technology already existed when we moved here I have great respect and admiration for anyone who moved to the Boston area before they could just pull out a phone to get directions. I genuinely don't know how you did it. I think if that had been me, I would have gotten so lost I would have just lied down on the side of the road and given up. I am constantly dependent on the guidance that I receive from my cell phone when I'm in the car. Without it, I think I would be almost completely helpless. I could get from my house to the church or to the grocery store or something, but ask me to go someplace I've never been before, forget it. In many ways, I think, the point that Jesus is making here in this passage this morning is similar to that. Left to themselves, the disciples will utterly fail at the work that has been appointed to them. They will get lost along the way and not know which way to go. As we open John 21 this morning, Some unknown amount of time has passed since Jesus and the disciples were last together in chapter 20, probably several days, perhaps longer. After the chaos and the confusion of Jesus's crucifixion, the disciples were absolutely hopeless, helpless, and confused. But then, as we saw last week, Jesus came to them, victorious over death and physically present with them with the wounds of the cross still on his body. It was a hopeful thrilling moment for them, and one in which Jesus revealed some important information to them, as we saw last week. In that meeting, he said in verse 21 of chapter 20, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. They are being given a mission, a responsibility, and a calling to go and serve the kingdom as Christ's own ambassadors and agents in the world. Just as the book of Matthew and Luke ended with a commissioning not only of the 11 remaining disciples, but of the church as a whole, John's gospel ends with a calling to advance the kingdom and make disciples as Christ himself has done. It is a daunting responsibility, to say the least, and it is being left in the hands of men who throughout this whole book have been shown to be utterly unqualified. The disciples were often confused about Christ's teaching. They made wrong assumptions about his mission. And when the night of Jesus' arrest came, they fled. The leader among the disciples, Peter, is not only fearful but disloyal to Christ when he swore three times, he swore that he did not even know this man that he had spent three years following. These are the men that Christ has chosen, whom he is sending into the world. It's like giving command of an army to lieutenants who, just a few days before, went AWOL and left their post. Nothing in this book gives us any confidence whatsoever that they will succeed in this mission on their own strength and merit. Over the centuries, that suspicion about uh, their ineptitude has seemingly been confirmed by many readers of John's Gospel when we get here to chapter 20, to the opening of this final installment in the book. The disciples have returned home to the region of Galilee, and they are there waiting Though they were commissioned by Christ back in chapter 20, now they are just going back to their normal lives, it seems. Galilee is the region that they're originally from, and in verse 3 of chapter 20, we read that they're even going back to their old profession, a fisherman. But I don't think that the point here is to condemn them for falling back into their old lives as though they were ignoring their calling. I think they're waiting for Christ to give them some more direction than simply that they're being sent And in the meantime, they need a way to support themselves and to eat, so they go out onto the Sea of Tiberias, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus uses this occasion to give them the instruction that they will need most. They are being left with an immense responsibility, and they only have a couple of weeks before Jesus leaves, perhaps less. But in that time, they don't receive any practical training, no preaching classes, no leadership seminars, no counseling workshops. He isn't going to leave them with a manual or a strategy guide or a checklist of the things to do or how to do them. When it comes to carrying their calling and responsibility to go and make disciples around the globe, he doesn't even give them any tips on how to effectively present the gospel. Nothing, no training whatsoever, except for the lesson that they are about to learn. Jesus uses this tiresome night in the lives of his disciples as a living parable, one that really took place in order to make a specific point that he wants them to understand. John says in the first verse that Jesus revealed himself by the Sea of Tiberias and that he revealed himself in this way. And he'll use that word again at the end of our passage, that Jesus revealed himself for the third time. The triple use of the word reveal in this passage should pique our interest, Jesus is opening the eyes of the disciples to see something that they could not see before, something that is true because he has conquered death itself. And he does it, John says, in this way, through this living parable, through this teaching moment in the lives of these disciples. He teaches them by having them live the lesson itself. It's a method that great teachers use with their students all the time. Rather than just telling them what he wants them to know, he shows them. It begins when Peter blurts out that he's going fishing. The other disciples who are there with him are quick to join him, apparently glad to have something to do as they've been waiting, and also glad, perhaps, at the prospect of a good meal and some income. So they head out for the night. Many of these men grew up fishing these very waters with their fathers. The feel of the oars in their hands was familiar. The long-practiced skill of casting the nets into the water probably came back to them after a few tries. This was the world that they had lived in for most of their lives, and in some ways, I'm sure, it probably felt good to be back at it. Nostalgia flooded their senses. But the night ends, and the sun starts to rise, and they have not a single fish to show for all their effort. It's obviously not how they expected things to go. Sure, it had been a while since they were out on the water, since they had been fishing, but not a single fish. These guys were pros. They knew to go fishing at night. Apparently, that's a better strategy. They knew that their chances of a good catch were higher at night. They even knew these specific waters where all the best fishing spots were. They knew the trade secrets that their fathers had passed down to them, generational expertise that could only come from years and years of honing these skills. Yet, after hours together on the water, they have nothing to show for it. They don't pull a single fish out of the sea. I've had fishing experiences like that. Anybody who's been fishing has probably had an experience like that. After a while... When you're not catching anything at all, the whole thing begins to lose its entertainment value. Now I can imagine that if you're depending on these fish to provide your next meal or your paycheck, a night like that would be frustrating and discouraging. But then John records in verse four, that just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He calls out across the waters of the Sea of Galilee, as he had done in the past when he was teaching some other people. He says, children, do you have any fish? And the word for children here, according to the theologian Don Carson, is sort of a common nickname. And the question that he's asking assumes a negative answer. It's like Jesus is teasing them after their long night, their frustrating night on the water, calling out to them to the shore, from the shore saying, hey guys, didn't you catch anything at all? When they admit that they have not, he tells them to toss their nets over the right side of the boat instead. I can imagine, on hearing him say that, that they're somewhat indignant for a stranger to be calling out to them, professional fishermen, telling them that all they needed was to put their nets on the other side of the boat. Already in this scene, there are two signs that divine power is at work. The first is that there is no other explanation for the fact that seven experienced fishermen go out for an entire night and catch exactly zero fish. There is no other explanation apart from the fact that Jesus willed it to be so. Secondly, there is no other explanation why seven experienced fishermen who are finishing an exhausting and frustrating night would actually listen to a stranger that they don't recognize on the shore who it seems is making fun of them because they obviously caught nothing. There is no reasonable explanation why they would listen to his advice to just fish a few feet in the other direction, apart from the fact that Jesus willed them to listen. He is in control here, and we see that in the most obvious way when suddenly their net is so full of fish that they can't even haul it up into the boat. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is most likely John himself, realizes that this must be the work of Jesus himself, and he cries out, it is the Lord. And Peter dives into the water to swim to shore, leaving his friends to drag the heavy net full of fish. Waiting for them there on the shore is a meal that Jesus had prepared for them, and an invitation to come to breakfast. Jesus had anticipated their need after a long night's work, And though he is the king of all kings, he does not consider himself above serving their need in this way. And as the disciples settle in for breakfast on the beach, Jesus says, or John says rather, none of them dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. In wonder, they see their risen Savior marveling still at his victory over death, and silently they are asking themselves, can it really be? Can it really be? The whole scene has raised questions about how this passage fits into the book as a whole. Even though, as people have often noted, chapter 20 seems to make a better, more triumphant, and tidy conclusion to the book of John, this final chapter has a lot of critical things to say about what it means to hear the call of Christ, to be sent by him, even as the Father has sent Jesus himself. The message here is one the disciples must not miss, and it is one we must not miss either. As he often does, Jesus uses the experiences of real life and even brings them about to help us get a hold of concepts we might otherwise miss. Looking back over our own lives, we could probably each identify days or seasons, many of them frustrating and stressful as the disciples' night was, or perhaps much more so, Looking back, we see those moments and perhaps recognize that Christ was at work to help us see something more clearly or to hold something more closely. That was Paul's point to the church in Corinth when he explained to them that to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul doesn't explain here in the book of 2 Corinthians what he means by a thorn in the flesh. Some people think it was a physical injury or an illness, whether it was some sort of mental anguish or an aggressive persecution or even a demonic force. But the point is not what Paul was being afflicted by. It's that he knew God was at work in it to teach him something and to raise him up and keep him from becoming prideful. So, he explains… Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. He's saying, I'm content with this affliction, with whatever it is that, that this thorn in the flesh that he's dealing with, I'm content with my weakness insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. In his weakness, the strength of Christ is at work. Through this suffering, whatever it was, God taught Paul to rely on the strength of Christ and to be content with his own weakness. He came to understand that the power of Christ at work in him and in his life was ultimately more joyous and more satisfying and more effective than his own strength ever would have been, even with his thorn in the flesh afflicting him. And that is essentially the point that Jesus is making here with the disciples as well, as he prepares them for the responsibilities that he is leaving in their hands. It's worth noticing that unlike his other miracles, this one is not performed in front of people who don't know him, as others in his ministry were Most of his miracles, which John refers to in this book as signs, are like big lighted billboards pointing people toward Jesus and inviting them to believe. But this is one that only the disciples see. Men who know and believe that Jesus is God's Son, who was crucified, buried, and now lives again. This is not a sign for unbelievers compelling them to believe. It is a sign for the believing church so that they will hear and believe the message contained in it. He wants the disciples to know. He wants the whole church to know. And more than know, he wants them to find joy in the fact that his strength will sustain them and see them through the difficult years that are ahead. That's because he is not a body decaying in a tomb. They can rely on him because he is alive again and the challenges that will come, and as they face death for doing so. That is the message of this passage for all Christians who will follow after these 11 disciples. It is the strength of Christ that sustains and brings victory to the church for his glory and his renown. Not our strength, not our wisdom, not our glory, his. His. And this passage underscores that main point in three important ways. Among those seven disciples who were present, John mentions Nathanael by name. And even though Nathanael was one of the 12 disciples who traveled with Jesus day and night for three years, who spent every day with him and witnessed his miracles, heard his teaching firsthand, and who would be left with the, the tremendous responsibility of leading the church after Christ's departure, Nathanael is not well known. That's because, at least in part, this is only the second time he's been mentioned in this entire book. The only other time we read Nathanael's name was way back in chapter 1. So we read Nathanael's name in the very first chapter and the very last chapter of this book. In chapter 1, when he was first called as a disciple, he was initially doubtful of Jesus, wondering if anything worthwhile had ever come out of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. But Jesus called him. And he became one of the twelve and one who would give his life for the gospel because Christ's strength sustains his people. He enables them and equips them to persevere uh, amid all the challenges that their lives will bring. Nathanael is here along with the other disciples because Christ has made it so, because he has willed him to be here. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus told the disciples that he would never lose a single one of his people and that no one, no force in heaven or on earth, is able to snatch them out of his hand. He gives his word that those who belong to him will never be lost, no matter what. The night of Jesus' arrest, of course, seemed to push those promises to the breaking point. One disciple betrayed him and the others fled for their safety. Not a single one remained. And Peter, the one who had said that he would sooner die than leave Christ's side, had sworn three times that he never even knew him. But Jesus does not lose what belongs to him. Even Peter, who wilted in fear before a little girl's question about whether or not he knew Jesus, was not lost. Jesus' sovereign authority, his wisdom in the midst of our uncertainty, and his goodness to overcome our sin brings back those who belong to him. Like sheep, Peter and the rest of the disciples had scattered and hidden themselves in the hillsides, and like a good shepherd, Jesus went to find them and bring them home. There's a lesson here for all Christians. I often hear people make comments or say something to the effect of, I need to get back to my faith need to get back on track. I need to do this or that. We tell ourselves to do better, to draw ourselves close to Christ, and to hold ourselves there by legalistic commitments to prayer and to Bible reading and church attendance and other signs of vibrant faith. We see those things as tools that we can use to keep ourselves close to Christ, when what Christ wants the disciples to see and us to see is that He is the one who holds us close. If he has laid claim to our lives, we could not shake loose of him even if we tried, as we see in Peter's presence here. He will never lose one who belongs to him. If we try to outrun him, he is faster. If we try to hide from him, he finds us. And if we turn our eyes away from them, he graciously turns them back. No Christian draws himself close to Christ. We are drawn and held close by his grace, even after we fail. After the disciples fled for fear, it was his grace that brought them back. And it was the revelation of his resurrection that bound them to him by faith, and it will be the gift of the Holy Spirit that will equip them for ministry. It was not their strength or their resolve, neither will it be ours. If we see that and rejoice in it, Then prayer and Bible reading and time in gathered worship alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ will cease to be our legalistic attempts to keep ourselves close to Christ, and they will become what they were intended to be, our, our daily chance to joyfully rely completely on His grace. The disciples are there not because they are brave all of a sudden, they've had a sudden change of character, and now they're these courageous warriors for the kingdom, or because they're faithful as though they never scattered in fear for their own safety, abandoning Christ. But because Christ is faithful to them, and he will never let them go. This passage reminds us that the same thing is true for each of us. If our faith is flourishing, it is because he is faithful and he has drawn us close. And if our faith is flagging and sin seems triumphant and Christ seems distant, we need most to look to our faithful Savior to raise us up. If we focus on a to-do list of Christian habits as the means by which we will come close to Christ, we are relying on our own strength, which will never be enough. Secondly, though this parable teaches that the mission of those called by Christ to advance the kingdom will succeed, it is because of him and not because of us. It's It's significant, I think, that Jesus chooses this moment for this lesson. He has sent the disciples home to the region of Galilee, and then he waited some amount of time. He just hung back and waited. Evidently, he was waiting for them to go fishing in order to make his next move. It was their home turf and their area of expertise, the world that they had grown up in, the skills that they had spent years honing. And he's ready to show them that all their experience, all their expertise would not, could not guarantee success. He was showing them that what they needed more than experience and expertise was Jesus himself to guide them. Because the mission of Christ's people will succeed on his merit, not theirs. It wasn't until he told the disciples where to cast their nets that they caught anything. And two things about that moment are interesting to me. First, it's not as though they were just fishing in basically the same exact spot. The difference between the right side of the boat and the left side of the boat, that's like a couple of feet. Is that supposed to make all the difference? It's not like they were in the wrong place. They caught fish because Jesus had authority over the fish and over the nets. And secondly, when they dropped their nets on the right side of the boat, they catch 153 fish. For centuries read a lot about this this week because it's fascinating and bizarre. People have been trying to decode this number, 153, for 2,000 years. Like, oh, well, this is, oh, oh, that means because of the moon and the, you know, tides, obviously Jesus is coming back on May 16th, right? They've been trying to figure out what this number, 153, means. In fact, I, one of the most interesting theories about this from the second century is this idea that uh, scientists at the time, scientists at the time had had figured out that there were only 153 species of fish in the whole world. They had a count. They had figured it out, 153. And so when they read John's gospel, they figured that that number, 153, well, that can't be a mistake. That must be a reference to God's plan to reach the totality of the world, right? 153, there must be 153 different kinds of fish in that net. And that, oh, Jesus is telling us he's going to reach the whole world. Others have speculated about the number in a wide range of bizarre theories about what it might represent. But the point seems to be simply that they caught a lot of fish. <laughs> I, don't, I think that's the point. They caught a lot. 153 is a lot of fish. That their night with no catch became a morning with a huge catch, and that the only difference was that Jesus had spoken. It was his word that changed everything. What the disciples need and what the church needs most, what I need most, is not strategy, expertise, or experience. What the church needs most is for Christ to speak with the same authority that brought the world into existence, which stilled seas and raised the dead. Arthur Pink, the English theologian from the early 20th century, wrote about this moment, And the point that Jesus was making, that success in their ministry, the disciples' ministry, is not due to their eloquence, their power of persuasion, or their anything at all, but due alone to his sovereign drawing power. In his strength and his will, which will ensure the success of the disciples' mission and the mission of the church in the millennia to follow, there is great comfort for us. It is the mission of the church at its very core to obey Christ. Our responsibility is faithfulness to Him and to trust Him to sort out the details. In our evangelism, we scatter the seed of the gospel and trust Him to make it grow. If we faithfully share the gospel with every single person we meet and not a single one of them comes to faith, we will still have obeyed Christ, and He will still be glorified. In our effort to shape culture, we stand on biblical truth and doctrine And trust Him to bring conviction and change. And if we faithfully call for reform, for morality and society and ethical leadership and biblical principles, and we never see a single measure pass, we will still have stood for truth and the honor of the Lord, and He will still be glorified. In our fight against sin, we honestly face our guilt before a holy and just judge, and we acknowledge that on our own we are slaves to it, and that we need a Savior, And as we shine a light on sin and repent of it, we trust Christ by his Spirit to set us free. And he is glorified. The calling of the Christian life is not to be good enough. It is not to be strong enough, and it is not to be successful. It is to trust Christ and to listen to his voice. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to try harder. He tells them to listen to his voice. What they needed most was not a better fishing strategy. It was the humility to realize that they needed Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus does not tell us to try harder. He tells us to look to him in hope and faith. Belief and union with Christ begins with this humble faith. At the moment that we first look to Christ and trust him to do what we could not, and that humble faith It's not merely the beginning of our relationship with Christ. It is the heart of every single day of the Christian life as we seek to grow, to obey, and to be faithful to him. Lastly, Jesus teaches his disciples about what we ought to long for when our work is done. This lived parable in the Sea of Galilee did not end when the disciples saw that their net was full of fish, even though that would have been a fitting and miraculous end. If the point was only, oh, Jesus' voice is what we need, we need to be humble enough to hear it, look at the success that might happen uh, when Jesus moves, that would be a fitting end. But it doesn't end there. It ends with them sitting ashore with Christ, who had prepared a meal for them and welcomed them to join him. There is an anticipatory tone to this story. It nurtures a longing for the day when we will see Christ face to face and welcome us to his table. And it reminds us that by the grace of Christ, the goal of the Christian life is fellowship with Christ himself. It's easy to forget that, to get so caught up in our lives here that we lose sight of where it's all headed. The Apostle James declares that all of life, even a long life of many, many years, is in the grand scheme of eternity, a wisp of a vapor that exists for a moment and then disappears. It does not last. For the disciples, the frustration of a long and tiresome night, and then the thrill of a heavy-laden net in the morning were each major significant issues that they thought they would remember perhaps for days, perhaps months, or years. At the time, they seemed so significant. But even as important as each of those things were, they became insignificant pretty quickly. We see that in Peter, who, as soon as he saw Jesus, forgot all of that. He forgot the long night and the fish in the net. He takes one second either to put on some clothes or to hitch up his, the clothes that he has on. The language here is not entirely clear. And then he dives into the water without even bringing the net aboard. For all he cared, the pile of money that the fish could have made him or uh, or the long night of effort that he had spent casting nets over and over and over again meant nothing to him. All that mattered was getting to Christ. They have labored hard. They have obeyed the word of Christ, and now they are welcomed to his table. It is, I'm sure, a humbling moment for them. Not long ago, Just days ago, actually, they had scattered. Peter had sworn that he did not know Christ, and John notes that it is a charcoal fire which Christ has lit on the shore. Now, I think that's an interesting detail. Why note the particular kind of fire? I think it's because John wants to draw a connection. The word for charcoal fire that's used here is used in only one other place in the whole book of John. And it comes up on the night of Jesus' arrest, When Peter is watching from a distance, he's standing next to a charcoal fire when he denies any association with the man that he's followed for three years. The charcoal fire is a reminder that not long ago, the man who has just leapt from the side of a boat to get to Jesus was swearing that he did not know him. And now they are being served by him. Despite all their failures and their cowardice, They are served by the king of all kings who invited them with forgiveness to receive his kindness. A day will come when every follower of Christ will look on him and remember our own failures and our own cowardice. We will remember our sins, but Christ will not. We will plead for forgiveness, but in Christ, the penalty has already been paid he will not stomp his feet and reprimand us for our failures. He will say to all of those who look on him in faith and hope for salvation, come, child, you must be tired after such a long night. I've prepared a meal for you. And we will ask ourselves in wonder every single day, can it really be? That's the end game here. Not earthly success, In any of the things that we pursue here and now, but fellowship with Christ, who meets our needs and fulfills our deepest longings. The calling of Christ is not a calling to an easy life. It is a calling to joyful reliance on the strength of Christ in the face of hardship and pain and danger and persecution and hunger and sacrifice for the sake of his glory. We are seeing this play out in real time on the news every single day, with every update from Afghanistan. Believers there are living this every day. This parable helps us to understand what it means to be joyfully reliant on Christ, to give us perseverance, to grant success to the mission of the church, and to bring us home into his very presence. Though some of us are certainly too proud to admit it out loud, we all know what it means to need the support of others, to need help to feel helpless and to rejoice at the arrival of a rescuer or a deliverer, we know what it feels like to be lost without any sense of which way to go. In those moments, Christ is teaching us something about what it means to rely on him. But unlike a GPS that I use to navigate around Massachusetts, our dependence on Christ will never be diminished. The more I drive around Massachusetts, the more I learn the map by heart, and the less I need my phone to tell me where to go and how to get there. But with Christ, that does not happen. We will never need him less. We will only learn more deeply how needful we are and how deep his love for us truly is. So as we consider the message of this living parable, let us spend more time in prayer seeking the Spirit of Christ more time in Scripture seeking the wisdom of Christ, and more time rejoicing in the truth of the gospel, seeking the courage of those who are already redeemed. More time doing these things than anything else. Let us rely on Christ with great joy, knowing that he has proven himself reliable and is working all things for our good and his glory. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we are grateful today for the book of John. We're grateful for the way in which you work in your people through your word. And we ask that the message of this passage, the lesson that we see here, that Christ is teaching, that it would be written on our hearts this morning. We desire to be people who fearlessly serve you, who love you sacrificially, and who wage war against sin in our lives. And we know that it will be by the word of your son that we will endure that we will succeed, and that that we will be welcomed into your glorious presence. May we be people who joyfully rely on you this day and every day that you give to us. We pray this morning, declaring our utter need for your Son in whose name we come before you today.